Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Birds are on our minds today. We're going to be talking about anticoagulant rodenticide. That's a quick fix for controlling the rat and mice population, but it's now having an effect on birds of prey. We'll hear about a place called Hope, a local raptor rehabilitator here in Connecticut, about how it's impacting birds across our state. After ingesting this poison, there is very little that can be done to save the birds. We'll also hear about legislation to limit the use of these poisons and alternatives to rodenticide. The traditional snap traps aren't the only way to keep out the mice. And later, we'll also hear from the Connecticut Audubon Society. They're celebrating their 125th anniversary and have a special birding challenge to mark the occasion. But first, joining us to help us understand how rodenticide impacts all kinds of life is Christine Cummings. She's the executive director of A Place Called Hope. Thank you so much for joining us today, Christine. Oh, I am so happy to be here and to have this opportunity to speak about such an important topic. And we want to hear from you, too, about this exciting and important topic. Have you seen falcons, hawks, or eagles where you live? You can join the oh. conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. And want to start the show with uh, Rob on Twitter, who shares that we live in Roxbury, Connecticut, and have many hawks, red-tailed, red-shouldered, and occasionally coopers, and also a lot of bared or barred owls. Thank you so much, Rob, for helping us kick off our show today. And Christine, did you have something you want to share with what birds you're seeing? Uh, we have a lot of different kinds of birds of prey in the state. We're very lucky because there are actually 10 families worldwide, and eight of those families are here in Connecticut. So there's a lot of opportunity to see birds of prey if you know what you're looking for and you pay attention. I'm going to try to figure out what I'm looking at sometimes when I see birds, to be quite honest. Um, how did you first get interested in birds of prey? Well, for me, it started um, back when I was just a toddler. I was about three years old. And I came into the living room where my father was standing in front of a bay window. And he was looking out the window and he was laughing and he was smiling and he was just full of life, just very happy to be watching what he's watching. So naturally, I crawled over to him. He picked me up and he showed me what was so exciting. And it was actually crows crows that were dive bombing our garbage cans. <laughs> and instead of being upset by this, he was just thrilled over it. He just, he pointed out to me how intelligent they were. And that's where my entire spark began. I became obsessed with birds, birds, birds. That is, Love them all. I was going to say that is quite the image. I kind of picture a video game based on dive bombing yeah. crows. And so for, for listeners that aren't familiar with your organization, can you describe some of the work that you do? You know, how did raptors or how do raptors end up in your care? Absolutely. So A Place Called Hope was founded in 2007, and we specialize in predatory birds of prey, but we do also take care of the corvid family, which includes those crows, ravens, and blue jays. 
So we answer to distress calls across our state when a bird becomes injured or maybe gets separated from its family, orphaned, or if a bird becomes sick. And we uh, either rescue that bird ourselves or with our group of volunteers, or somebody might pick up a distressed bird and bring it to our center. Our goal is to fix the problem, the situation, the injury, and get them back to the environment where they belong because it's our our mission to preserve these wild creatures for the future. And what does that rehabilitation look like, especially for those who have a physical injury? Can anyone just bring them in and you can help take care of them? Or how does that look like? Um, That's that's sort of how it works. Um, Some of these birds, of course, being that they are predatory birds of prey and can be quite large, it's not always recommended that the public just pick them up because they have quite powerful weapon feet. They have talons on their toes and they use their feet to defend themselves. So we don't always have the public bring them to us, but I can't tell you how many times people are very brave when they come across an injured bird of prey and they decide to take it upon themselves to get them contained in some way, some fashion to get them out to us. So it's a mixture of two things. We, we have a group of 18 volunteers that actually go out in the field to rescue, as well as those brave people in the public who will follow instruction to get those animals to us. And of course, the first thing we do is assess the injuries and go over the bird's body to find out what it is that's going on. And most of these birds are coming in, 98% actually, are coming in with injuries that are related to us human beings. So car strikes or vehicle collisions, that's the number one injury we deal with. And of course, even a bald eagle, as large as they can be, or a turkey vulture, they are not big enough to withstand impact injuries from our vehicles in a lot of cases. So some of these birds, if they're going to make it, the rehab process can, you know, fluctuate from anywhere from a couple days to quite a few months. Healing takes time. Right. And um, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I was just going to say we see a lot or you see a lot of injuries from vehicle crashes and, and human causes. What are some other causes that you're seeing that, I don't want to say it's typical, but what are you seeing mostly um, in terms of the injuries yeah. from these birds? So mostly, of course, it is the about 85% are the vehicle collisions. But what's creeping up after that right now for us personally at our center, of course, is the secondary poisoning cases. So we see a lot of that, whether it's rodenticide poisons or even, believe it or not, lead toxicosis. We have three current cases at our center being treated for lead toxicosis. So that's something that they pick up from lead fragments in the environment or in the animals that they're ingesting or eating or um, uh, in the gut piles left behind for, you know, when hunters hunt their deer game or a large game. Um, So that's a big issue that we're seeing more of. But some of the more typical things that someone might see in their own backyard would be window collisions. A lot of people don't think about how often these birds will strike windows or glass, and it can be very disruptive to a bird who does not understand something solid is there. And these birds, they see in the ultraviolet light spectrum. So one of the ways that we tell our our listeners and our followers is uh, to avoid these window collisions is to consider the purchase of ultraviolet light markers, paint, or even stickers because they glow and show the bird something solid is there. 
Another big injury would be things like uh, garbage entanglements. We get a lot of that from fishing line to balloon ribbon to blueberry netting to um, any of the paper, uh, not paper, sorry, the plastic bags that people dispose of or even our face masks. We were starting to see some of that happen to some of the birds out there as well. And so... I'm sure many of us have had experience uh, hearing birds collide into the windows, and I'm sure you know, I get freaked out. I can't imagine what was going through their brains when when that's happening. Are there other incidences that we can help avoid in terms of our houses really being on their territories? Uh, well, um, putting up nesting platforms or nesting boxes for some of these uh, birds out there is a good way to get them away from the actual house itself putting your bird feeders a little bit far from the the windows themselves. Although um, some people really like to use those suction cup window feeders and the songbirds will go right to the glass so you can watch them. That actually helps to break up that glass. Again, these birds don't recognize something solid is there. They either can see through it or they get uh, disoriented by the, the actual reflection from the sun or even the moon. And I know you have some experience with this, but can you talk about birds getting stuck in chimneys? Oh, yes. That's more common than people understand as well. If if you have a chimney stack and you don't have any kind of chimney cap on the top, that is a perfect cavity nesting spot for a lot of critters, not just birds. We typically will end up with calls with owls stuck in the fireplaces. They just kind of get stuck down into that nesting cavity spot. This time of year is real popular for them to do this because they're looking for cavity holes. The barred owl being um, one of the number one owl species that does this, as well as the eastern screech owl. Both of these species like to find holes or divots in trees to make their nesting spot. So that dark crevice looks appealing until they get in it and can't get out. So it can be a real problem and and people will be in their homes hearing something and they're not quite sure what's going on. Sometimes other animals, of course, can go in, um, including ducks and and other mammals. But in our case with these owls, usually it requires one of our rescuers to go out and kind of shine the light up and and feel around above the flue to grab the weaponed feet (laughs) of the raptor and carefully, cautiously pull the sooty bird out from the chimney. So I was going to say, so we we are going to get into the rodenticide section of our conversation in a little bit, but I also want to touch a little bit about bird flu because that is something that is now causing a problem. It's part of the issue. So how has that influence in terms of how you're able to take care of birds or to have volunteers come in to take care of them? It's been very challenging for us. Of course, this started really last year where we had to change everything in our normal protocol and routine. So we've had to introduce a very strong biosecurity and and keep that in place for every bird that comes in. And we're at a place called Hope. We're managing between five and 800 admits per year. And every year fluctuates, and it's somewhere within that range. So there's a lot of birds coming through our center. So each bird that comes in has to be treated as a possible potential carrier of this virus, especially if they're showing symptoms. So we had to design outside of our our main clinic, we had to design an isolation area away from everybody, as well as what we call our triage building, which is sort of our quarantine quarters. 
So these birds come in, we have to treat them as a potential positive. We have to be wearing our PPE. So we're back to like it's COVID all over again, wearing our masks and, you know, washing our hands and being very cautious about whatever has touched the bird. We do have access to um, what uh, a rapid test, what we call a, a quick in-house test. It's not 100%, but it does help us to kind of uh, isolate the, the virus itself. And if it comes back as a positive, um, we know that these birds are doomed because, unfortunately, for the species that we're catering to, we've not seen one of the avian influenza cases um, live past 12 to 14 hours. They usually die within six days, but the ones that have come to us, and we've had 16 cases since this started, um, don't make it. And can you tell us about some of the birds in your care right now, and is it your intention to eventually release some of the birds back into the wild? Yes, that's such a great question. I'm glad you asked that because the goal is to put them back into the environment where they belong. That's always what we're trying to do. Um, some of them make it back and some of them don't because of the nature of their injuries. So we do have a crew of ambassador birds that live here permanently. They'll live out the rest of their lives with us. And those are the birds that we share with the public during public presentations. But the birds that we're trying to get back, of course, the goal is to get them out there as soon as possible. And with the avian influenza, we're finding that our rotation rate is a little quicker in some cases than it used to be. We used to have birds stay a lot longer during their healing process. But now the goal is to make room for the next one coming in because we are that busy. Um, currently, right now, we have a bald eagle that is, um, today is day five. I'm really excited because... He came in very, very sick. He's grounded. He's very dirty. He's very skinny. And it ends up he's got lead toxicosis. So he's quite sick. And after the third day, we start to kind of feel a little bit less guarded um, where we think, okay, there's a chance the bird will make it. And we're on day five. So that's really exciting for us. But we know that he is still in critical condition. And we don't know if his body, his overall body condition will um survive the process. But that's the goal. We'll get them better and get them back home, especially now. This is the worst time of year for any of these birds to become injured in any way because nesting is happening. We've got families out there. We've got moms on eggs. We've got babies that have just hatched. So it's really critical we work fast. And so, you know, we've been talking about the different injuries that could potentially bring these birds to your, your center and, and also with bird flu. And so on top of that, we are also dealing with rodenticide. And I believe the last time you were on the show, it seemed to just be the start of the problems that we saw with rodenticide and how they're impacting the raptor population. Can you talk about how what rodenticide is and how birds end up ingesting it? Absolutely. So rodenticides, there are quite a few different um, poisons out there, but the ones we're focusing on today are, are what we call anticoagulant rodenticides. There are two classifications. There's something called first-generation anticoagulant rodenticides and another classification called second-generation anticoagulant rodenticides. Both of these work with an anticoagulant factor. So the ingredients actually inhibit the body's ability to produce or recycle vitamin K. Now, vitamin K is something that we all have within our bodies and it helps us to clot our own blood or make our blood thick. Or if we get a little minor cut, we can stop bleeding by getting a little scab. Um, when you are on an overdose of anticoagulant, 
you cannot have your blood thicken. So basically you bleed out, whether it's externally from a minor cut or even a major cut or internally, or even just from bumping yourself with a bruise, you can continue to bleed. So anticoagulants work by um, making the animal hemorrhage. And after time, usually it takes about two to 10 days for the animal who's ingested these ingredients to succumb to these awful effects. Um, In that two to day, two to 10 day period, they become more disoriented, um, they become lethargic, and they're, they're confused, and they're not as aware of their surroundings. Now, of course, these rodenticides, um, the, the name is in the title, rodents, rodenticides, these rodenticides are meant to target nuisance rodents, like rats or mice. But the problem is, because it takes two to 10 days for the animal to succumb to the effects, they don't die at the bait stations where the poison is placed. So they go off back into the environment where they become food for predatory animals. It's not just birds of prey across the state, across the nation, or across our planet, actually. But since we are a bird rehabilitation center specializing in predatory birds, that's what we're seeing. We're seeing the negative impact this is having on our birds of prey. And they're the ones who are our natural predator, you know, to take care of rodent issues. These guys are designed to eat rodents, and they're eating their their designed meal. They're eating what they're supposed to be eating and they're dying because of it, because they're ingesting those rodenticides secondhand. Now, back in the 1940s and 1950s, when first generation was developed, um, it was quite effective um, at that time. But over time, like a lot of the ingredients of of, uh, poisons out there, over time, they start to lose their effectiveness on the targeted animal because they start to adjust and adapt. So mice and rats, they decided to adapt to these poisons and they, they weren't being as effective. So that's when second generation anticoagulants were designed and developed. There's only four ingredients. They were uh, put together in the 1970s and they were designed to be more potent, more dangerous and more deadly. And whereas the first generation ingredients take the animal, um, the animal must eat about its own body weight. They have to eat a, uh, a bunch more of this poison. They have to actually ingest it where it has a cumulative effect. The second generation anticoagulants don't work like that. It only takes one feeding. So while that animal, let's just say it's a rat, who is eating that second generation anticoagulants, he goes off after he's filled his belly. He goes off and does whatever he does out in the environment. He comes back for more because he's not going to start to get sick right away. He's not going to die right away after ingesting that poison. But that dose from that one feeding will be enough to kill him. So in other words, he's coming back to that bait station to eat even more poison, becoming even more potent for the predator who's likely going to find him kind of disoriented and lethargic out in the wild. So predators are designed to actually um, look for animals that are debilitated. This is the perfect storm for our birds of prey. When I think what you just described is such a complicated complicated cycle, and it's not something new, but in fact developed through decades and decades of um, of sort of uh, policies and as well as the rodenticide itself. And are there treatments for for birds when they come across this, or what is that like now? 
Yes, that's an excellent question, too, because back in the 1940s, 1950s, 1960s, um, with the first-generation anticoagulants, by the way, these are the ones that are on the store shelves for the public to purchase. So any of the rodenticide products that you can find um, in your hardware store are likely from the first-generation classification. So back when those were more popular, we had a better chance at treating our wildlife. I'm not going to say that they all get to us in time because you have to think like a wild animal. They're out there masking their symptoms, trying to behave as normal as possible so they don't get preyed upon themselves. So it's not every case that becomes sick from eating or ingesting these poisons that makes it to a wildlife center where they can receive treatment. It's more likely that a cat or a dog, a domesticated pet, or even a small child, God forbid, um, gets treatment right away. And the treatment is actually what we call vitamin K therapy. It's vitamin K injections. If we get the animal in time before the damage is too severe and they're not already bleeding out from all of their organs or they're not already in any kind of seizure activity or cardiac shock, then we can actually try to reverse it with those vitamin K injections. Our likelihood of having that happen um, is more so with first generation. We have not been able to save one of the uh, victims to second generation to date. There's nothing we can do because the damage is so severe. They are so deadly. Well, that's a very severe note on that. And I want to rewind a little bit just to ask, too, you know, you mentioned that the birds kind of pretend like everything is okay when everything is not. So can you talk about what are the symptoms that a bird um, has ingested as a second generation anticoagulant? Like, How do you know that that's what they have had? Okay, so basically, um, symptoms can mimic a lot of other symptoms. So that's why, like, like I said before, with the avian influenza, when they come in, we treat them as a positive until we can rule things out. It's the same with our rodenticide um, suspects. So when they come in, typically what we're finding are birds that have been grounded. They have this faraway look. They're not really fast with their reactions, so they're slowed down. Their senses are dulled. Um, Next, what we would do on a bird like that, that we're not seeing any obvious injuries, we would take a little tiny bit of blood from the talon. We clip the talon just like you would with a dog nail. We get a drop of blood, we put it on a slide, and we set it aside with a timer. Blood usually dries up in that form in three to four minutes. If it's still liquid after three to four minutes, then you can start to say, oh, uh uh-oh, this might be an anticoagulant. It's not really all that scientific, but it's the only way for us to know if we're dealing with anticoagulant from the blood itself. So the other things that we look for if, let's say, we find the blood has not dried up is we look on the body of the bird for bruising and bleeding under the skin, and we listen to their lungs, their respiratory system, because the blood starts to pool and affects their breathing. So usually what we find with the positive cases are um, lots of uh, bruising underneath the feathers. We wet the feathers down and push them aside in the belly area, and that's where we'll notice the blood that's just basically pooling up underneath their skin. It's very, very sad, very sad to watch. And at that point, when we see that blood pooling underneath the skin, we know that we are likely too late. 
You've been listening to Christine Cummings. She's the executive director of A Place Called Hope. Coming up, she'll be staying with us and we'll be talking about how rodenticide gets into the wider ecosystem and if there are any federal reg- regulations to control it. You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. We've been talking with Christine Cummings. She's the executive director of A Place Called Hope about how she first became interested in helping animals, specifically rehabilitating birds of prey. And we're continuing our chat about how birds are affected by rodenticide. And just a reminder that you can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. And and so I actually want to bring in uh, Tom Anderson from the Connecticut Audubon Society real quick um, for some questions on what's going on with uh, the Audubon Society. Tom, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you very much, Catherine. I'm happy to be here. It's doing a quick jump. And so, Tom, just wanted to ask, um, what are some of your reactions to what Christine has been talking about? You've been following the conversation anywhere from rodenticide to bird flu to just rehabilitation. You know, what are some of the things that jumped out to you? Yeah, well, the, the rodenticide thing is is really important. And it's timely right now because the General Assembly in Hartford is considering a bill that would ban, ban those second generation um, rodenticides. Um, we, we've, we're obviously supporting that, that bill. And we did an action alert last week among our members to, to persuade our members to write to their state senators. Um, and I, I, I think over a couple of days, we got about 600 emails sent to the, to the general assembly to try to get that bill passed and strengthened. Um, I have, I haven't heard in the days since then what the status of it is, but, um, it's it's a it's a really important bill, and if people are listening, they should um, uh, they should contact their state senators because the the bill is in the state senate right now, and it needs to be called to the floor for a vote. 
And we will be coming back to talking about the potential regulation on what Tom just mentioned. But we have Christine back on the line and want to start with, uh, we've got some questions about the fact that we have a large rodent population problem here in Connecticut. You know, Christine, what are some solutions to controlling the rodent uh, problem that you can share with us? Absolutely. I'd love to share that. Now, what people don't always um, stop to think about is the fact that the reason why the rodents are there in the first place. So getting down to the root cause, which always has to do with three things. It's either going to have to do with food source, nesting material, or water, shelter, those kinds of things. So when we clean up an area where the food is being, you know, free-for-all food is being provided for these rodents, then you're going to see a decrease in some of these populations. So it's really important to clean the area up, make sure there's no access to the food, no access to shelter, no access to water or nesting material. So the other thing that goes along with sanitation is something called exclusion, where you can either hire a company or um, if you're handy yourself, you can start to put up um, things like mesh wire to block some of the entrance, entrance or exit spots so you can act, um, limit the access to the structures themselves. So there's all kinds of different methods, and you can use that stainless steel to kind of pack around pipes. And you just want to make sure that you cut back some of the shrubbery, um, make sure you don't have that um, ivy covering because rodents really love that. They can hide and tunnel through that and get to the foundations of buildings, seal off the foundations, um, of course, I think we just lost Christine real quick, but that's okay. We're going to take a quick call from Christopher, who does have a question for Christine, but we'll see if we can get your question answered. Christopher, you are on the line. Well, thank you very much. So I am calling from Sharon. We live on the banks of the Housatonic River. We have a substantial rodent infection, mice, not rats, uh, and the Uh, an exterminator that comes to the house regularly. And when I've asked him about secondary killings of um, raptors, he says, oh, no, this uh, poison that we're living using doesn't last very long. It's not a big problem and so forth. Listening to this, I now doubt his word. Uh, And so what I really want to ask is, what sort of questions should I be asking the exterminator to figure out whether or not I am, in fact, contributing to the problem? Well, thank you so much for that question, Christopher. Uh, Tom from the Connecticut Audubon Society. Tom, can you answer that question? I, I would ask him to show me the label of the uh, of the rodenticide he's using and um Take out your iPhone or a camera and take a photo of it and and then go online and, and double check. Thank you so much for that, Tom. And we have Christine back. Uh, welcome back, Christine. Something Hi. is up in the air today, speaking yes. of birds, yes. right? And so, you know, we've been talking about all kinds of issues, you know, going from rodenticide to bird flu and, and everything in between. Um, are you seeing any more birds getting impacted by this? You know, how much of the raptor, raptor population is being impacted? And are we seeing a raptor decline? Okay, so at a place called Hope, so far to date, we have actually submitted 54 specimens, and we only started 
testing these birds back in 2021 because of the money and the fees associated with the tests. So each one of these specimens goes into Yukon and has what we call a necropsy. It's kind of like a um, an autopsy for humans, but it's a necropsy for animals. And they try to ca- um, figure out the cause of death. And then from there, the livers of the animals, the specimens, are sent out to Michigan State University where they can determine what ingredients are responsible in the anticoagulant family. And out of the 54 tests, we still have five tests pending. So we have 49 completed tests. And out of the 49 tests, we have 40 that have tested positive for one or more of the ingredients of second-generation anticoagulant rodenticides. That's a pretty sobering number. All of these birds, all of these specimens were deceased and had to be submitted that way. Like I was talking about earlier about the vitamin K therapy, um, we can't really tell which ingredients by putting a drop of blood on a slide or by looking at the symptoms because anticoagulants work in the same manner. So for us, we just do our best guess. And the only way for us to know if it's first generation or second generation is by submitting the, the deceased bodies. So out of those 49 tests that are completed, only two of them had first generation as well as the second generation in their bodies. I came in on the tail end of a question about how do you know if what your um, pest management professional is telling you is is true. Um, I, I agree with what Tom said about reading the label and going online and looking that up. But I want to also add that poison is poison. There's absolutely no such thing as a safe poison. I don't care what they're trying to paint it to be like. Poison has never worked. And when poisons are applied to any rodent situation, the rodent's response after the initial die-off is to create, procreate, make more babies. So it never solves the problem. All it's doing is actually managing the problem. It just perpetuates the cycle because the rodents keep coming back and the poison has to be keep um, up, has to be keep has to keep being applied. So every time it's put out there and it has a little bit of a die-off, then there's an explosion in the population. And then that die-off has to happen again. And it's pretty much a, a four-week cycle for the service contract. So the thing to ask your rodent professional is to please use the sanitation and exclusion methods. Now, sanitation exclusion work takes a little bit more work on the front end, but for the long-term results, it is really the way to go because it solves the actual problem itself. And once you've got the actual sanitation cleaned up areas and the exclusion work in place, all the non-toxic safe alternatives can come into play and become more effective. So there are some new methods out there, some new technologies out there that are just brilliant, like something called smart technology products. There are these um, technology product companies that actually come out and assess the area with these sensors where they actually can put these products underneath city streets or above in houses or commercial buildings where they actually learn the cycle of the rodent and the pathways they're most prominent in, and then they put their traps down. These traps are internet um, connected, so they know when the traps are full, so they can actually empty the traps every time that they're full, which is brilliant because rats in particular don't go anywhere near where their um, deceased relatives are. And then um, it's a great way to solve uh, big infestation problems, as well as this is my favorite 
fertility control. I know it sounds funny. It's birth control for rodents, but it's not hormone-based, and the goal is not to make them sterile. It's actually to make them less fertile. So fertility control products are made from natural ingredients that have to be applied every four weeks, and that's a wonderful fix for pest management professionals because it actually works in all the pilot studies and all the people that have been using these products to date. It's got a 96% success rate in knocking back the population where it's more manageable. And it's safe. It doesn't have a secondary effect on our predatory animals. It's a wonderful fix to a huge problem and something that as it becomes more popular and more um, used by, by the public, I think it's going to end up being something that has a lot of different companies that will be supplying these services as well as these products. It's a great fix. Well, then speaking of, you know, products and with questions about labeling and what to look for and how what residents can do to sort of protect their space, not only physical, but also their health. We also want to talk about policy. You know, Tom Anderson uh, has spoke about it a little bit earlier based on reporting by the Hartford Current, you know, second generation anticoagulant rodenticides. Uh, faced an outright ban in the Connecticut General Assembly earlier this session. You know, how did that turn out? Do you have any updates for us or any background that you can share? Yes. So the um, the champion of this bill is uh, Senator Christine Cohen. She happens to be part of um, our district here where a place called Hope is um, located in Killingworth. Um, she did have the proper ver- verbiage in this particular bill, which was to ban the use and the sale of second-generation anticoagulant rodenticides statewide. And the reason why we say the use and the sale is because right now, as second-generation anticoagulants are concerned, they're actually regulated by the U.S. EPA. So only licensed professionals are supposed to be the ones that have these products in their um, possession. So you're not allowed to actually go and buy them off the store shelves. That's why it's the first generation in the regular stores. But there is a loophole on the Internet. So the state of Connecticut, of course, wants to see that loophole closed so the public can't purchase these products. But again, for us, um, we don't see that being really the answer to this problem because this these poisons are being overused. Even It doesn't matter who's using them, whether it's a professional or a homeowner or a farmer. It's what is involved in the ingredients and what it's doing and the far-reaching effects that it's having on everybody out there, including us humans. It's leaching into our soil. It's leaching into our water. There are studies that you can read about that have been compiled very conveniently for all of us through uh, an organization called Raptors Are the Solution. Raptors Are the Solution is based in California, and they actually have on their website scientific evidence. You can click on that tab, and there's study after study after study proving how bad and deadly this is worldwide. This is not just in Connecticut. It's all across the globe. Of course, our goal with Bill 962 is to see these um, banned entirely in our state. And unfortunately, in order for that to move out of the Environmental Committee, the verbiage was weakened. It was watered down. And the way it stands currently, it is not going to do anything to um, make any difference. 
So I know that this coming Wednesday, there's something that's going to happen um, with that bill and the verbiage, and they're working on it. So it's critical that we all write to our environmental committee and our, our legislators, um, letting them know that we support the, the uh, bill, SB 962, with stronger verbiage to ban the use and the sale of second-generation anticoagulant rodenticides, which are the most deadly, potent, and dangerous ingredients on the market. Well, thanks so much for that update. We will be sure to keep our eye on that. You've been listening to Christine Cummings. She's the executive director of A Place Called Hope. Thank you so much for sharing your experience with us today, Christine. I am so happy to have been able to offer some information on this topic. It it has really become something that is um, my passion to see this happen, to ban them in the state, uh, to save so many of these predatory creatures. They are just the most amazing beings, and we really need them. We really need to protect our, our wildlife and our environment. Well, thank you so much for that very hopeful message. And coming up next, we're going to hear from the Connecticut Audubon Society about a very exciting celebration. If you enjoy birding and fun challenges, you're not going to want to miss it. Join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. We've been talking about birds and how they've been impacted by rodenticide, but now we are switching gears to a lighter note, birding, and how to introduce the younger generation to get into birding and conversation. Joining us now is Tom Anderson, who is the Director of Communications at the Connecticut Audubon Society, and Kathy Borgman, who is the Communications Manager for Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Thank you both for joining us today. You're welcome. Yeah, thanks. It's great to be here. And you can also join the conversation 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Kathy, want to start with you. There's an event coming up that's called Young, Gifted, and Wild About Birds 2023. Can you talk about that and also give us an idea of how old were you when you started to get into birding? Sure, this is a really great series that the Connecticut Audubon has put together. And I've seen some of the presentations from some absolutely brilliant young scientists sharing their work. Um, It's really exciting to be a part of this myself. Um, I started birding um, when I was a kid. My mom taught me the backyard birds. And really, though, I didn't grab on to birding until I was in my mid-20s or early 20s in college when I took ornithology class for the first time. And then from then on, I've been studying birds for the rest of my life. So it's been um, it's been a great thing. I really love it. And how do you start to introduce the younger generation into birding? You know, I think citizen science seems to be really critical in conservation efforts, but you got to inspire them, right? So how do you go about doing that? Yeah, that's a great question. And the Cornell Lab of Ornithology has this really amazing app that's free called Merlin Bird ID. And it's just this incredible way to access the nature, natural world that, you know, we've never had before. It'll help you identify the birds you see. You can identify birds in photos. And the coolest thing that it can do now is you can 
hold up your phone and it'll record the birds around you and identify who's singing. It's just, it unlocks this whole new world for people. It's just amazing. I'm not gonna lie, my world was blown when I first realized that when you're birding, you're actually listening to bird song. Because I always wonder, you know, how can you spot these birds so far away? I don't have the best eyesight, so that's really a question for me. <laughs> so, um, mm-hmm. thank you so much for sharing that app information. And so, these young conservatists, they do make some very valuable impacts to science. Kathy, can you talk about what's been going on there? Yeah, we also run a citizen science program called eBird. Many of you may be familiar with it. We now have over 99 million checklists with more than 1 billion observations shared by birders around the world. And all of that data powers incredible conservation decisions throughout the world. We've got a bunch of different examples of how eBird data can help with land use planning. There's a story about um, looking at coastal resiliency in New Jersey and black rail habitat that was helping to make management decisions to save and safeguard both the black rail and provide, um, facilitate joint planning to safeguard human lives. And so both Tom and Christine had mentioned about policy earlier. So, Kathy, can you talk about how citizen science has influenced policymaking in the Northeast and in Connecticut? Yeah, that's a great question. So all that data that's been contributed to eBird can be used to assess where birds are and where they aren't. And the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service used some of that eBird data and advanced statistical modeling to determine where bald eagles are not on the landscape so that they can put up renewable energy sources such as wind turbines because we don't want to harm those eagles in these projects, but we also want to advance renewable energy. So in that way, it's influenced policy decisions. And Tom, we've talked about some birding and a very exciting challenging that's coming up to celebrate the Audubon Society's birthday. Can you talk about this 125 challenge? Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to. Um, uh, this is our this is Connecticut Audubon's 125th anniversary. We were, we were founded in 1898 by a group of women in Fairfield, and uh, um, as a way to celebrate and to encourage people to visit our sanctuaries, we came up with the 125 bird challenge, which is um, a, a very simple, non-competitive, we hope relaxed way for people to get out to our sanctuaries and see as many birds as possible. What the goal is to see 125 species, one for each year, um, on our website, ctaudubon.org slash 125birds, you can you can find all the details and also find a list of all of our sanctuaries. And you can um, you can download a PDF of 300 species, uh, 300, 300 of the 343 species that have been seen on our sanctuaries. Um, it's a it's a printed out, folded up, and you can bring it with you when you visit visit our sanctuaries. So for someone who can only probably identify like three birds, that seems to be so many species. <laughs> what are some of the more challenging finds on this list, you think, Tom? Uh, well, um, the, for me, the most challenging birds and, and um, you know, sort of on the, on, on the list of, of uh, top-notch bird people at the Connecticut Audubon Society, if there are 10 top-notch bird people, I'm number 11 or number 12. So I'm, I'm definitely not among the better. For me, the challenges are always shorebirds, um, which are abundant, uh, say, at the Milford Point Coastal Center in July, August, and September, and even now, actually. 
uh, and the uh, the warblers that tend to pass through high in the tree canopy in May. Uh, and one of our one of our smallest um, urban sanctuaries is Birdcraft, which is our original location. It's it's well known throughout New England as being a magnet for war warblers during migration. So if you want to participate in the 125 bird challenge, um, make your way to Birdcraft on a May morning and um, listen and look for the warblers. And that's actually a great place to use the the Merlin audio ID because it'll it'll help you figure out what you're listening to. Well, we will definitely be get on to downloading. And so, you know, with, with the challenge and with the 125 birds, Tom, uh, we've got about a minute left, but we'd love for you to share. How can people keep in touch with you on their progress and also get to know or keep in touch with other birders? Well, um, you can keep in touch with us by uh, emailing us your results as you go along, um, 125birds at ctaudubon.org. And they'll, those will come to me, uh, send us photos, send us anecdotes about what you've seen, and I'll, I'll post them on our 125 birds page. Um, and um, I'm sorry, Catherine, what was the rest of that question? No, I was just going to say, is there a way for other birders to get to know each other or just to keep in touch? Uh, you know, um, we have a very, very active Facebook group called um, Connecticut Audubon Birds and Nature Photos. It's got something like maybe 25,000 people on it. Um, and they're sharing their their bird information and their bird photos all the time on there. That That's one good way. Great. And I know you also mentioned there are many sanctuaries that we have around our state that seems to also be a good way to check out these birds off the list. Uh, would you say that's the case, Tom? Um, yes, the the if you if you if you were to ask me where to where to start and which sanctuaries to start with, the Milford Point Coastal Center, um, our our new sanctuary at Stratford Point, those are both right on the sound. So you get land birds and water birds, and there's usually a a lot not lots but a number of other birders uh, there um, throughout the day. So if you're looking for someone to help you identify. Uh, a, a bird that you don't know. There are almost always people around. And we have some really big inland sanctuaries as well. Deer Pond Farm in Sherman. Um, our Bafflin Sanctuary at the center at Pomfret. Those are both 700, 800 acres. So they're they're really good for grassland birds and for, for forest species. Thank you so much for that list, Tom. Uh, we will get on birding ASAP. Just want to thank Tom Anderson, who's the Director of Communications at the Connecticut Audubon Society, and Kathy Borgman, the Communications Manager at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Thank you both for joining us today. Thank you. Happy to do it. Thanks for having us. I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show is produced by Tess Terrible. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Download where we live anytime on your favorite podcast app. And thank you so much for listening.